Oh yeah. Okay. So today we are talking about capital allocation. And I'm gonna share my screen with you. Let me know when you can see it. Where is my share button? Right in front of my face. Yeah, I'll see. Okay, I sent this in the group, I think two weeks ago. And some of it is self-explanatory. Most of it probably is not, I would imagine. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about capital allocation off and on. So I wanna kind of start at the beginning stages of it again. Do you know what capital allocation is kind of in a basic sense? On a, on a basic. What is it on a basic sense? Um, so I think it's the idea of how do I utilize um, funds, capital, most efficiently based on the opportunity that I have Yes, that's the way I see it. Yeah, the way I put it is um, is to put your capital towards its best, safest, highest return use. That's the way I put it. Mm. So outside of value investing, like just in general, I've studied two things, um, or I've studied value investing the most, just kind of in general, but. Other than that, the other two things I've studied the most over the last 12 plus years is investment float and capital allocation. <clears throat> so these are the seven stages of capital allocation as I currently see them. I'm constantly learning. Actually, I just, I'm going to show you another doc um, that is kind of an expanded version of this. It expands mm -hmm. on the, um, each section more. Mm -hmm. There's more detail to it. But over my study over the last 12 plus years, these are the kind of seven stages overlying capital allocation. Focusing on the core, which is essentially internal, focusing on your internal operations, improving those first. And these are in order. Let me say that. These are in order for a specific reason. Um, yeah. Because you should focus on your core first. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Yeah. Why should you do that? Oh, I saw, I saw like the analogy, like, you know, you're going to build a house, you better get the foundation right. Otherwise the house yep. going to fall apart. Yes. And that's essentially true. Yes. So the next focus, if you, if you choose after a while <clears throat> to move from here to mm -hmm. here, and that's why the question mark is here, because most businesses should not focus outwardly at all for a very long time, if ever, frankly, because they don't know what they're doing and they are more prone to make a mistake. I think there was, I read something recently that something like 75% plus of outside acquisitions fail. Mm. Some insane stat because they buy something just because others in the industry are buying something or because they feel like they have to buy something. Um, it's not necessarily for a strategic reason. So that's why the question mark is there. Most companies don't focus even enough on here. I finished up reading a book called Beyond the Core the other day mm -hmm. that said that, um, I don't remember the exact stat, but it was some 
something um, along the lines of most businesses, if they focus on their core or they, they stop focusing on their core too soon and they they leave, I think it was two or two to four times ups, potential upside in their core to focus on things on the outside. <clears throat> um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Why do you think instead of focusing, continued focus on the core people and most companies or many companies look to expand outwards? Why do you think that is? Well, I guess it's probably the incentive system. That's what I'm guessing. CEOs, you know, consultant, you know, like investment bankers, they all, everyone, gets, everyone gets a piece <laughs> of the slice whenever there's the merger and acquisition. Yes. So that's a very, very, very large, important reason. Typically, the bigger a company gets, the more money the CEOs get, the more money the executives get, the more money the company owners get, the more money yeah. the makers get, all the stuff you just talked about. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has to do with ego as well, mm-hmm. is they want to grow their empires mm-hmm. and their footprints, I guess. Mm-hmm. even if it's not necessarily a good acquisition. Mm-hmm. An- another part of it to me is um, they probably get bored, frankly, of doing the same <laughs> thing over and over again, honestly. Yeah, yeah. People generally don't like doing the same thing over and over again, and that's essentially what stage one is, is focusing internally on your operations, looking for continually looking for more and more efficiencies, more and more ways to cut costs, more and more ways to do things better to improve margin. That's essentially what stage one is. Just repeating that over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, very few companies do that. Toyota comes to mind. They've done that for decades. Japanese mm-hmm. companies with Kaizen, they do that all the time. Have you heard that term before, Kaizen? I'd say no. Um, they make the... Kaizen is essentially making small improvements constantly. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, okay. Okay. To improve efficiency, profitability, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So, any questions on the first two stages? No. Makes sense. Okay. So, here's where we get to some of the super cool stuff, or at least to me, the far more interesting stuff. Investing capital at the highest, best, safest returns to multiply capital. So what I talk with the companies that Shafiq and I are working with is essentially this is the exact model I show them or I tell them about. We focus here first to improve profitability, cash flow, efficiency here. If we decide to expand outwards, we'll talk about that later. And then with the excess capital you build from here, definitely, and here potentially, Mm -hmm. you look to invest it using proper capital allocation techniques. Mm -hmm. This is where things, I mean, things are difficult here, but this is where things people like, even CEOs and founders of these companies we're talking to, um, don't have any idea about any of this. Mm -hmm. And this is a stat that is, I think from one of the books um, I just read. Yeah, is, but yeah, but not everybody's um, goal is going to be the same. Like you know, yes, like your goal is to maximize capital. Maybe the CEO's goal is to maximize not losing their job. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's no, exactly. And that's why that's why it's very hard to think about this because the layers you were talking about with um, what was it the math stuff we were talking about? 
there are multiple layers to this. So you have to mm-hmm. think about incentives. You have to think about people's goals. You have to think about people's ambitions. Um, mm-hmm. And that's even before you get to this stage, which just kind of exponentially exponentially expounds on these possibilities. Because essentially mm-hmm. what I'm saying here is you look at the best, highest, safest return to multiply your capital in any arena. Mm-hmm. So that could be focusing more on your core, going back to stage one and focusing more on your core. It could be expanding geographies. It could be expanding product lines. Mm-hmm. It could be buying another company. It mm-hmm. could be training your people better. It could be building better systems internally. It could be buying um, investment real estate like apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. They're in pretty much, it could be learning, personal learning and improvement. There are an endless number of possibilities at this stage and so if people do know, which again, most people do not know anything about capital allocation, but if they do, they don't do it well, 99% of them. Again, I, the book, The Outsiders, they found, I think it was seven or eight that met their criteria of great capital allocators, <laughs> seven or eight in the entire world. No, really? That met their criteria that they used in the book. Yeah, seven or eight. The criteria must be extremely, extremely strict, right? Um, I, I don't think it was actually, I think it was, yeah, you've heard of Jack Welch, the CEO of GE yeah. back in the eighties. Um, yeah. essentially it was, um, I think their criteria, their basic criteria was somebody who produced better returns than Jack Welch did during his time at GE in terms of shareholder returns. And because, um, they, how they measured capital allocation, if I remember right, or proper capital allocation was increase in shareholder value. I think right. that's how they calculated it. So What's they, the seven company? Um, Warren Buffett was one. Um, Henry Singleton was one. I don't think Tom Murphy was in there, but he's a great capital allocator. Um, I don't remember who the other individuals were off the top of my head, right. um, but there were only seven or eight wow. fit their criteria. <laughs> So this is <clears throat> extremely difficult concept. And we talked about this before a little bit is because even if you know what it is, and again, most people don't, but even if you know what it is, you have to have the proper mindset mm. and ability to think about these kind of things. You can't yeah. just continue like with Brickworks when we talk about Brickworks and we'll talk about them more later. Yeah. Um, Brickworks, they are essentially destroying capital every time they take it out of their investment arm and put it in their legacy business. Yeah, pretty much. 10 percentage points of their capital or half, essentially, because it was, I estimate it was about 20% in the one business returns and about 10% in the other business. So about half of their investment capital is automatically gone, destroyed when they take it from one business to the other business. And I told you when we were doing that, I guarantee they know nothing about that. I guarantee. They, they, no, I think, I think they know what they're doing. It's just, uh, it's, it's a brick company. <laughs> yes, no, I, yeah, I should rephrase that. I guarantee you either they don't know what they're doing or they just want to invest in the legacy business because they don't know how to best allocate the capital. I should have rephrased right. that. Right. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're, this is extremely difficult for people to comprehend. Um, and that's why I want to talk about it more because it's an incredibly valuable concept in everyday life, frankly. Mm-hmm. How should you invest your time? How should you, what makes you happy? 
Right. Uh, we were having a conversation before we started recording this that I'm not going to bring up. We should, 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 have, uh, should have talked about investment in relationship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is time, right? How are you willing to compromise in a relationship? How much are you willing to compromise in a relationship? Right. right. That's a huge one. Are you willing to have kids? That's a huge decision. That's are you big... willing, should I, if you do have kids like I do, should I be spending more time with them? Am I spending enough time with them? Should I be working more? Should I be working less so I can spend more time with the kids? That's something I think about quite often. And that's essentially capital allocation where time is capital. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> that's the way to think about it. Time yeah. is capital. Time is capital. I mean, other forms of capital are um, money, obviously, debt, relationships, equity, um, knowledge, skills, um, capital. Yeah, and this, this talks about all of those different kinds of capital. It's not just money. It's how am I spending my time? Am I spending my time efficiently? Is it making me happy? those kind of things are essentially capital allocation decisions because time is capital in this scenario or in real life, actually. <clears throat> so how, what was the definition for, for capital? I mean, it's obviously financial. Yeah. Set, but like, what's, uh, it's like something like that's valuable, but that's not really tangible. So in my opinion, and again, I'm not an academic, but in my opinion, capital is something you exchange, something of value exchange for another, for another, for, another, for something else. Um, that's my definition of capital. Um, again, I'm not an academic, so that's probably not technically right, but I view it again, happiness, um, peace of mind, essentially. <laughs> yeah, I need that. <laughs> um, those are forms of capital to me, um, again, knowledge, skill sets, right. <clears throat> all that is to me is, can be viewed as capital and should be viewed as capital. That's why when we're talking about kind of the general economy, and again, I don't get into this too much with you guys or ever, but the general economy, there's people with high skill sets that get paid a lot of money. There's people with low skill sets that get paid $8 an hour. Mm. So um, skill sets and knowledge to me are capital too, because essentially yeah trading your time, again, you sacrifice people typically with the highest skill sets in whatever it is, let's say engineering, have mm -hmm. spent 10 plus years gaining this knowledge. Well, if you're just out of high school and you're working at McDonald's or something or in high school working at McDonald's, you don't have those skill sets. Mm. So I can take my yeah. student, this is master club. Yeah, no, That's essentially, yeah, I mean, this is 100 yeah, this is 100% applicable to everyday why life, you, every decision, why, every day. Why are, you, why are you coming to school? You know, like, what's the, yeah. what's, the, what's the end goal? Yeah. Do you want to gain the knowledge? Are you here just to please your parents? Um, are you here because you're being forced to? <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll do that. Raise your hand if you, if you don't want to be at school and it's like half the class. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, and there'll be some days you probably don't even want to be there. You're a teacher, right? There's some yeah. days you don't want to be there. So... Yeah. That's just human nature. Some days you don't feel like doing stuff. I don't feel like learning about investing every day. <laughs> and I love investing. So, um, so yeah, no, this, this to me is super interesting. And I want to point something out is you don't have to necessarily go in order 
well, you start here, you should start here, but you don't necessarily go in order. So you can skip two, for example, if you decide not to expand outwardly, mm -hmm. um, you can go from one to three and invest your excess capital you get from here more efficiently. You don't have to necessarily go to step two um, mm -hmm. if you decide not to. Yeah. So step four or stage four, using other people's money to positively leverage your returns even higher. This is investment flipped. We've talked a little bit about this, correct? It's like, uh, also mostly talks about insurance flow. I think that's what you mentioned. Yeah, most of the time it's with insurance companies, um, but it, most companies do have it. It's things like accounts payable, um, taxes payable, those things that you have to pay at some point, but you don't have to pay them now. If you know how to use your balance sheet well, you can use these kind of, these are these liabilities, but if used well and you know what you're doing, you can use these as positive leverage instead of liabilities to mm -hmm. enhance your returns. So there's a study that, I don't remember who the author of the study was, but he studied Buffett's career and he found that almost 100% of Buffett's excess returns are due to what uh, investment flow. 100, almost 100% of his excess returns are due to investment flow and his knowledge. Of it. Almost 100%. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the number he came up with is they positively leveraged his returns by about 1.6 times. Wow. That doesn't sound like a lot, but he's been yeah. investing for 50 plus years. So 1.6 times every single year, is essentially what he's saying. Yeah. That's a lot over time, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're what essentially tripling your or tripling your returns instead of what you should have gotten and what you actually did get. You're tripling right. your returns, whatever, two, three years, something like that. Yeah. So this is an incredibly powerful force as well. And again, almost nobody talks about this as well. Mm -hmm. Next one. This is what we just talked about with Buffett. Compounding. Power of compounding over long term. Mm -hmm. 1.6 times over one year is a decent amount. 1.6 times every year over 50 plus years creates a $530 billion company out of $100,000 initial investment or initial investment funds. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much what, that's pretty much the history of Berkshire. <laughs> yeah, he started, and I've actually got a presentation about this that I've built, uh, titled "How Buffett Took One Hundred Thousand Dollars, which was his in, initial investment capital from family and friends and stuff like that, and he turned how he turned it into five hundred thirty billion dollars." Right. He essentially these are the steps he follows over and over and over and over and over again over the last fifty plus years. Mm -hmm. So this is, well, all these are important, but this one, this is where things start snowballing. That's why I call it the snowball effect. Mm -hmm. Because once you get here, if you are doing things well, you should have a ton of excess capital, correct? You should be mm -hmm. investing that excess capital well, and you should be using other people's money if you can to magnify those returns. So you should be having ever more free cash flow, operating profits, ever more excess cash flow you can invest. Does that make sense? Yeah. So here is where you learn about that and then you leverage it. You use that excess cash flow 
to invest in these other assets well, which gives you more excess cash flow you can invest well. And then the cycle just continues repeating over and over and over again. This is exactly what Buffett did. Exactly. Mm -hmm. He bought one of his first companies. He bought uh, Sanborn Maps. Have you heard of it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he took, they made, they fixed some of the internal operations of the company, made it more efficient, uh, mm -hmm. produced more free cash flow out of it. Then instead of going here, well, I think he was still investing it externally at that point, but he was using the cash flow to invest well, the excess cash flow to invest well, to earn more money so he could buy other businesses. And then he was using in time, once he learned about the power of insurance companies, he used some of his excess cash flow to buy insurance companies to further magnify his money, which gave him more excess cash flow. And he just repeated. And that's for number seven is repeating this entire process. So this is essentially the entire process that Buffett and these other great capital allocators focus on over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully this is pretty simple. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Okay. So here's where we get to some of the problems with this in a real world sense though. So mm -hmm. where is the doc at? So, Here's stage one from the previous screen, right? Mm -hmm. Here are some, and again, I'm still constantly adding this. I just updated it a couple of days ago. Here are some of the, the decisions you have to think about in just the first stage. <laughs> well, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yes. So, this is where things get super complex. This is what a consultant does? This is what they're supposed to do. Frankly, mm -hmm. most of them don't. Most of them want to just get money from people, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like, but I don't, even though I am a consultant on these kind of things, I don't have a high opinion of most other consultants. I think a lot of them, frankly, are just wasting people's money. Don't, uh, they, don't a lot of them work for big companies like McKinsey and stuff like that? McKinsey and Bain are two huge ones. And they, in my opinion, are very good. They, I mean, I've read a lot of their stuff, their uh, case studies and stuff like that. Um, actually, the books I was just mentioning, Beyond the Core, Profit from the Core, um, that I learned a decent amount of this stuff from, they're uh, employees of Bain. Who uh -huh. Chris Silk, I think, is the main author. Um, and I don't remember the other guy's name. But they're employees of Bain. I, I greatly admire Bain and McKinsey at least from an outsider's perspective, from what I've read of them um, and how they think and how they operate. But yeah, I think a good majority of business consultants, management consultants, uh, executive consultants, whatever, mm -hmm. frankly don't know what they're doing um, and are just wasting money essentially. No, for the fees and yeah, to get fees and stuff like yeah. that. So, uh, but here, so this is where things get complex, super fast. So you have a company, right? Mm -hmm. You have these sides of operations and more, correct? Mm -hmm. Typically in a typical company of any decent size. Mm -hmm. So this first principle, Kaizen, what we already talked about, you're looking to make small, consistent and continual improvements in everything in every one of these operational units. So in your marketing, 
for example, a perfect or a one small example, should I fix a headline kind of on a very tactical level? This is, we're talking about super high level strategy with most of this stuff, but let's get to a real tactical level of what this means in a real world sense and a marketing campaign. Should I change a headline? <laughs> will that make, will that increase conversions by 20%? Should I put it on Google or Facebook or some kind of <laughs> social media? Should I put it on Google, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, whatever. Or should I do a direct mail campaign? Uh, that's actually quite complex. <laughs> yes. So here's another, another level even further than that. So you focus or these companies should focus on capital allocation at the grand level, uh, but also at the micro level. So let's continue right. with the marketing example. So if I decide to put my marketing budget into Facebook, what kind of return am I getting from that? Mm -hmm. Am I getting a 10% return on my money at least? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm you, need just to you need to be able to measure that. Right. And in marketing, it's easier than something in like sales, which is sometimes a lot more long-term operations. It's reasonably easy finance reasonably easy, but HR, for example, let's go to HR. How do you measure if your employees are happy? KPI? KPI, no, <laughs> no KPI. <laughs> How do you know if your employees are loyal? Oh yeah, that's a good point. So there, there are literally dozens, hundreds of examples of how to improve in each level of just this one part of this first stage. Mm. So if let's say you're an owner of a business, one of these businesses I'm running or I'm working to consult with overseas. So I talk, or I have talked a little bit about them, but I built most of this model after I, the last time I talked to them on zoom or in person. So the owner of the company, uh, I'm thinking about one company in particular, cause I met him in person and he's the guy that flew me over there to Dubai. So he's the owner of the company. He founded it. He runs with his brother day-to-day -day operations. Okay. He also has a head of finance mm -hmm. who runs the finance department. I don't, they have some sales, but I don't, I think his brother runs sales. They don't do much marketing. Mm -hmm. So essentially, and this is why CEOs get bogged down. And if they do know anything about this, they don't do it well because as CEO, you have to oversee all of these departments. Correct. Right. You're as a CEO, you're supposed to be looking out for the grand level kind of vision of the company, pushing the vision of the company forward in a positive fashion. That's your overall goal. But you still have to deal with all these people. So in a kind of real world sense, the owner of the company would have somebody running marketing, somebody running sales, mm -hmm. operations, finance, HR, and so on. But yeah. the CEO would still have to get reports from these people to see if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And he would also have to give reports back to them on what they should need to improve on if they aren't performing. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. All the while, 
the CEO has to worry about the overall structure of the company. So is that why CEO get paid a lot? Yes. <laughs> In my <laughs> opinion, hard. yes. Because it's a hard I mean, job, right? Yeah, I mean, frankly, most people, like my wife's a perfect example. She is a great nurse. She could be a great manager if she wants to. She doesn't want to manage people. She does not. Under no circumstances does she want to manage people. Uh, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't mind doing that kind of thing. I don't mind overseeing kind of grand level strategy. She just wants to do her job and do a great job and that's it. I, on the other hand, like thinking about this kind of stuff as you can hopefully tell. <laughs> I like thinking about this kind of stuff. But it gets really complex really fast. That's why in, a, again, if the company is structured correctly and properly, you should have great people you trust to run these departments mm -hmm. well. So you can focus on things like capital allocation, learning, um, looking at industry trends, looking at grand level strategies. Uh, oh, that's what Buffett does. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what Buffett does. So he hires or when he takes over a company, he either leaves man, the manager, owner, whoever in charge, or he hires somebody to do it. So he can focus on yeah. reading, learning, grand level strategy, yeah. um, capital allocation. I think he said he spends like, I know he sp said he spends like up to eight hours a day reading, up to 500 pages a day or more than 500 pages a day. But I think he said he spends the rest of the majority of his time, not in meetings, he spends it on thinking about capital allocation decisions and how to best use his company's capital, which is now what $120 billion as of a couple days ago, I think. Yeah. So probably this, why he spend time trying to do all the merger and acquisition and then, you know, like firing people and CEOs and stuff. Just doesn't have time for that. Yeah. Well, and frankly, that's not the best use of his time either. So you can think um, about capital allocation kind of from a company perspective down to the marketing sales kind of granular tactical level operations perspective, but also the personal perspective. What is, oh, his, yeah, time best like <laughs> yeah. is his best time used for micromanaging these people? No. The, <laughs> or is it best trying to figure out how to use the capital? Mm -hmm. I think over 50 plus years, he's chosen the right path for himself on mm -hmm. focusing on capital allocation and reading and learning and spending most of his days not in meetings. I think he's, at this like a $530 billion company at an operations headquarters in Omaha. Yeah. I think they have like 27, 28 people. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how the hell that happened, but yeah. And I think he, I think I remember reading that at that they mainly handle paperwork for these companies. Like they get the financials from these companies and they handle paperwork, stuff like that. Each yeah. of these companies handles their own marketing, generally sales, operations, finance, all that stuff. Yeah. So headquarters, I think maybe mainly does, at least to my understanding, does mainly like paperwork and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't even think they handle legal stuff as far as I know. I don't think I remember ever reading about like they have a legal counsel specifically at Berkshire Hathaway headquarters. Yeah, I, I think that it's very, it's structured mostly based on honesty and trust the whole system. Yeah. And then, it, yeah, I think it's mostly based around that. And so the idea is um, people come to Berkshire because they know they're going to, not gonna get screwed over. Yeah, they're, they're not gonna be micromanaged either. People don't like being micromanaged. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> I, if I give you a job, I don't wanna, you probably don't want me to tell you how to do it. I mean, yeah. I might, if you have questions about it, I might tell you different um, ways that I would handle it. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. 
when my team, when we're talking about doing different stuff for our different business arenas, what I used to do is I used to work out specific plans for everything. I don't have time for that anymore. Frankly, I don't like doing it anyways. <laughs> what I do now is frankly, I say, hey, I'm focusing on things like training students, working on client relationships, getting new clients, kind of grand level strategy stuff. You guys, I'm telling you what we need to do, but you guys figure out how to do it. Right, right. So to me, and I mean, that's taken an enormous amount of pressure, just mental pressure off of me, frankly. So I can focus on things like this without looking at my phone constantly. I can be 100% present with you and our other students. And when I do webinars or whatever, I can be 100% present with you and not worrying about, oh, am I missing a WhatsApp message or an email from one of my team members asking me questions? I trust them to figure it out. And if they, then they ask me, which is fine. Yeah. But again, we're still on stage one, part one. And we've been talking for 45 minutes. Uh. <laughs> so this, this is why capital allocation, again, if people know about it, which 99% of people don't, again, even business owners, these business owners I'm talking to in the UAE and India, I'm talking with right now companies in the US, UAE and India that are worth combined more worth more than a hundred million dollars combined. Hundred US dollars combined. It's a pretty big company. So combined they're a pretty decent sized company, right? <clears throat> I mean these range from fifty million dollar company all the way down to like three and a half million dollar company. So it's a, there's a range, but combined they're about a hundred million dollars company. When I was over in the UAE specifically, I was talking about not necessarily this stuff because I built uh, again this most of this model after I talked with them, but I was talking with the um, head of one of the finance department guys, and uh -huh. the owner and the brother's owner of the who runs operations side of things. Looked at us like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> and they're running the company, which again, it's not. I'm not saying it as knock on them. It's just the truth about most companies. So then, how do they run finance then? If they don't measure it, how the hell do you run finance? So that's another thing I'm working on these guys with is like, maybe you can explain why your approach is superior and maybe well, give them. <laughs> I, I can give you an example is most people when, when they become CEOs, founders, whatever, they do it because they have an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, they want to work for themselves. They want to make the world better, whatever the reason may be, but they don't have a finance background. Most uh, of them, most of them come from marketing, sales, operations, those kind of things. Me as the finance nerd, and again, I'm a I admit I'm a finance nerd, but I'm not trained as in publicly trained like by a university on only finance. Most, of, and this is the way I, I purposely expand, explain it to uh, the CEOs of these companies and the people that I talk with in these companies. Mm -hmm. it, or to get back to my original point first, most people don't know anything about finance, whatever. Some of these companies that I'm um, talking with overseas, one of them, and this is a different company, hadn't looked at the financials in 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> the other one, or one of the other ones, has, I, I, I got all their finances before I went there, 
but when we went there in person, I had them print them out so we could kind of go over them point by point. And the I, had, I specifically had the finance guy in the department or in the room with us while we were talking with the CEO and the founder of the company. I said, do you know what this means? I circled uh, a lineup stuff. I said, do you know what this means in a real world sense? Hmm. He was like, yes. I said, okay, what is, what is it? He said, essentially we have zero cash flow and we <laughs> bankrupt. I said, yes. Uh, I said, by my estimates, if people stop paying you today, you have two to three months of time before you would be bankrupt. Uh, so they know. This is a three and a half, four, five million dollar company. Uh, so what I found, the more, the more experience I've got, not only evaluating public company stocks, but private company businesses now, is they know almost zero, at least the people in charge, almost mm -hmm. zero about how to actually read financial statements. Right. And then if they do, they don't know how to transfer that to what it means in the real world. Mm. This is for you can sort of add value for the business because yeah. Yes. Yeah, add a lot of value for the business. Yeah. So for us, for example, cash flow is if not yeah. the most important thing, it's one of the most important things if we're looking at a quality business, correct? Yeah. What I found over again, twelve plus years and evaluating thousands of companies all over the world is fewer than probably 5% of companies produce free cash flow to sales margins above 5%, which is my kind of minimum threshold uh -huh. to be considered a quality business. Fewer than 5% of probably companies in the world, probably far fewer than that. Mm -hmm. So these companies, especially these private ones I'm now working with, they are having issues with cash flow. Even the 50 plus million dollar company that I'm working to advise over in the UAE and India, they have operations in the UAE and India, 50 plus million dollar company. <clears throat> they have better cash flow than some of these other companies I was just talking about, which has essentially zero. Mm -hmm. But it's still, if they were to go, let's say six months, and again, they're not going to go six months without getting contracts, especially the business they're in, it's not going to happen. But if something were to happen to say one of their suppliers and their suppliers raise prices, they would be in trouble. Oh. And they're a 50 plus million dollar company. So to get back to the original point, this is a long way to kind of explain things is most CEOs, founders, they want to get into business because they either they're entrepreneurial and they just want to, right. or it's like a family thing, family run business. And if they do come from like a specialty, it's usually marketing, sales, or operations. It's almost never finance. Yeah. But even if it is, this is some, the point I was going to make earlier, is most finance people are trained as accountants. Mm. And they only, do, they only tell you essentially what the numbers mean, kind of in a semi-real world sense. Mm -hmm. And they show you what the numbers are. Mm -hmm. and they tell you where you can cut costs. Uh, they don't tell you what happens if you cut costs and you cut costs in the wrong place. They don't tell you. Hey, crop Perfect example. They don't tell you if you're investing your capital well. Uh, they, don't oh, even yeah. tell, they don't tell you if you're producing enough cash flow 
I mean, they'll tell you if you're producing enough cash flow to stay alive, but they don't tell you if you're producing enough cash flow to expand and grow. They don't tell you if you're producing enough cash flow to invest in other assets, or even if you should be investing in other assets. Maybe, and this is kind of a, goes back to the grand level strategy. Maybe you shouldn't be in the business you're in. Mm. If you're earning 1% returns in your business, but you could be earning 10% returns in some, some other business that is kind of adjacent to this business, which business should you really be in? Right. Should you be in the legacy operations or should you kind of work to transition to this other line of business? Mm -hmm. And then another layer further, if I do decide to transition to this business, how much capital do I take out of the original business? How much time do I spend on the original business? Mm -hmm. Should I sell the other business outright? Right, right. So yeah. layers <laughs> and layers and layers to all of this. Um, and it gets super complex very, very fast. If you think about it, which again, most people don't know anything about this, so they don't spend any time thinking about it. Mm. Does this make, hopefully this makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Do you have any questions about anything up to this point? No, it's, um, it, <laughs> it's interesting because this is just a step one and then there's like layers and layers and just a lot of factors and it's actually quite, like it sounds easy, but when you actually do it, it's not. It's like it's like it sounds easy, right? Allocate capital yeah. efficient. That sounds that sounds pretty intuitive. But then actually, what does it mean to allocate capital effectively? And then you break it down into like different like subcategories and different topics. You're like holy shit, I didn't even think about these questions. <laughs> well, that's that's. that's I, thought reading, about this. I was reading what what I was reading something the other day. Um, I don't remember what it was but it's essentially things are broken down into four categories. Things you know that you know, things you uh, know, yeah. don't know, things you um, don't know that you know, yeah. and things you don't know that you don't know. Yeah. This falls in the category for most people of things you don't know that you don't know. Yeah, pretty, pretty much, pretty much. And it's massive, massively yeah. important. I mean, 20x returns over time. Yeah. Proper capital allocation can 20 extra returns over time. I, so it's massive. That's not 20%, 20X. So what's that, 2,000%? Mm -hmm. So have you been looking for, like, I, how, how, have you heard back from the company that you're working with? Or? Yes. So good question. So these are the things I began working on in my mind when I was there in late March, early April, talking to these companies. I finished, or I'm not finished, but as of this point, I'm finished building out this model since then. Some of the things we talked about over there yeah. are efficiencies, yeah. profitability expansion, raising prices, and then where's cutting costs, cutting costs. Should be you could, uh, if you can personalize it for them, like if you show them the numbers to back up what you're saying, yes, I, I'm sure they will believe you much more. And you do like a chart comparison between if you take the step I'm recommending, these are the actual results, all that stuff. Yes, yes. No, I do that in my presentation. Um, so the reasons I know these work, not only because I've studied them for 12 years and studied people like Buffett and Singleton and Tom Murphy and all these great capital allocators, but also because the companies are starting to implement them and they're working. Oh, they're working. 
One of the companies, uh, I just got it second quarter financials, second quarter 2019 financials. This is the company who hadn't looked at their uh, financials in 20 years. Um, and I think I first got <laughs> their financials in February, March. Uh, <clears throat> Since then, by my estimations, they've uh, already improved the value of the company by 10 to 15%. Wow. Which is, I mean, which is quite a, quite significant. <laughs> by my calculations, between about five hundred thousand dollars and one point five million dollars. Right, right. That's, so that's how a value you've added for the company, essentially. Yes, essentially. And I mean, I'm not going to take credit for all of it. They still have to implement uh, things and whatever. Uh, but since I've begun talking with them and showing them, hey, these are some areas you can improve easily, and these are easy steps. I mean, raising prices um, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't really cost anything. Uh, I mean, it can cost relationships if you do it the wrong way, but if uh, you do it the right way, the worst they can say is no. Uh, the worst your suppliers, contractors, whatever can say is no. Well, I'm not going to uh, do that. It's negotiation, essentially. Yeah. The worst they can say is no, and if if you do it the right way, if you do it the wrong way and you piss them off, then they can leave obviously, but you shouldn't do that. Um, so yeah, these things are beginning to work for these companies. If they've been they, on the other side, another company I talked with over there and said pretty much the same things, just I tailored it to them, to their company yeah. and their business hasn't begun implementing these things. And they're still in the same spot with zero, almost zero cash flow that they were in when I talked to them in March. They haven't implemented so why is there a tendency not to implement? I'm just curious. Why is that? Why don't they want to implement? Well, just think about in general life. Why do people not change? Why, why do people not want to implement new things just in everyday life? Well, how about my girlfriend? She doesn't want to change because it's, um, I don't know, she's in denial. Uh, it's easier not to change. You know, like she lived with her parents. You know, it's just, uh, it's like admitting that you're fucked up, <laughs> admitting that you're wrong. And most people have an ego attached to it. So that's the most important point right there is the ego. Uh, ego. First off to admit that there, that you need to fix something. You have to admit there's a problem, right? Yeah. That's incredibly that's hard to do. I'm not going to say it's easy. It's incredibly hard to do. The Dubai culture, maybe for men, they don't admit men. Them, I said like Muslim, uh, Arabic men never admit they have a mistake. There's a there's a joke about this. They will never admit the mistake. I don't know about that. Um, these, guys are, these guys are Indian. Most of them that I'm dealing with over there, Indian uh -huh. and then, um, African so far that uh -huh. I'm dealing with over there. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't know anything about that. But men in general, worldwide, yeah. or I, yeah. even people, people don't yeah. like admitting when they're wrong. Yeah. They don't, they don't like it. Yeah. Even when they know they're wrong, they yeah. do not like it. Yeah. I find that consistent because they, they don't admit, they feel like it makes them look bad. I'll admit I'm wrong every day, but I've also spent, spent 12 yeah. plus years studying this kind of stuff right. and how the mind works and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Another one, or the main one in my opinion is ego. Okay. These company founders, they founded the company. They are, yeah. it's literally like one of their children. Most people, a uh, perfect example, I am a parent, obviously. Uh, Most of my friends in my social circle where I live in Tampa, Florida area have kids. Yeah. yeah. 
the parents sense. are usually the last one to notice a problem in their child because it's their child. They want to protect them. They don't want to say anything's wrong, all that kind of stuff. So, so how do they eventually find out? Either friends tell them or they just kind of eventually realize, hey, something's going on. You might need to get some help for your kid, which is not necessarily a problem, a huge problem in most cases. But so, so like, would the teacher not tell the parent if the kids are behaving bad or what? Sometimes teachers won't. No. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is. A, it's just. It's a fine line to tread. Very yeah. fine line. Because <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be the parent. Yeah, I mean, reputational damage. You'll fuck yeah. up the relationship with the parent. What happens? Most parents get defensive about the kid. You know, they mostly side with the kid. Yeah. I would say. Most My kid would never do that. <laughs> I mean, just uh, these mass shootings and serial killers, yeah. their parents usually are quote unquote normal in many cases. Yeah, yeah. they are. My son <laughs> would never do that. Or the, the neighbors of uh, some of these people. He was the nicest guy ever. I never saw any issues, which is probably some of the case because if they know what they're doing, they can hide it. But mm -hmm. when you think about it, there was probably some warning signs along the way if you were paying attention. It's just, but, I think it's a survival mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Probably down an evolutionary basis, you want to be with your tribe and you want to trust that your tribe is doing the right thing. It probably yeah. is. Um, so there's ego, which is, mm -hmm. in my opinion, the number one factor. Right. Change is hard. <laughs> That's people. true. Very hard for most people. And when you combine that with habits, uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Habits. I, uh, I was watching something the other day that, uh, and again, I've studied habits a lot because I wanted to break some of my bad habits and uh, improve them and make them good habits. I think they, uh, there was a study done that something like 80% of what we do on a daily basis, we just do it out of habits. We don't even think about it. Uh, that makes sense. Like brushing your teeth, all that stuff. Yeah, brushing your teeth, um, um, eating. Eating, at, eating at certain times of day, even if you're not hungry. Um, um, what else? Smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, the time you smoke cigarettes, get, getting in and out of the car or getting in the car, out of the car, um, cool. talking on the phone. Like I, I walk around and I talk on the phone. All right. Um, and I don't even think about it most of the time. I just no. have always done it. Yeah. Um, but they, yeah, 80% of what we do on a daily basis is kind of, I think I heard it described once as a click and a whir, like in a rope, like an old school machine, you hear it a click and then it just automatically sends it uh, into the monitor. That's kind of how our brain works most of the time. If you don't know how to control it, I guess, or change it, I don't know what the proper terminology is, but if you don't actively work to change something, mm -hmm. which takes a lot of effort and yeah. mental energy it will never change. You'll essentially keep doing the same things over and over again. Yeah. So those three combined make it extremely difficult not to help people, but to, um, to improve. In Do you still, get paid? Of your life. you still get paid if they don't make changes or what's the incentive to structure? <clears throat> so the incentive structure for me, well, how the contract is worded is we get paid once or how we've done it so far is we get paid on a quarterly basis, a set amount. Yeah. Then we get paid a performance fee based on how much their profits improve. Right. Okay. 
uh, let's say in a given year, let's say if their profits go up 10% in a given year, we get a percentage of those profits. Yeah. Um, and it's also in the contract that they, they pretty much have to agree to implement these unless we agree after discussion that they aren't going to do these. They pretty much have to. Yeah. So the, the, do you, would you continue to check on the client if they still paying you, but then they're, they, they're not actually making any changes? Like, would that be a waste of time for you? Or would that be like, you know, like <laughs> it, I mean, frankly, it would depend because I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt uh, until they show me otherwise. I think we've talked about this on a personal level before is yeah. I like to trust people until they give me a reason not to trust them. Yeah. Um, so if, if, I would give, give it probably a year and work with them uh, them to implement these changes. Yeah. But if they're actively saying they're going to, and they're not doing anything or there's, or they change their mind and say they're not going to do them. Yeah. Then after the year, I would uh, probably say it's better for us to work apart, but for a year, I would try to get them. That to becomes like a value. That's like a difference in value, I guess. At that yeah. point. Well, you got to think about opportunity costs too. That's another layer on top of all this. Do you all know right. what yeah. Yeah. Okay. The cost of uh, not doing something. <laughs> yeah, essentially the cost of if you make a decision to either do something or not do, do something, the cost or benefit that's going to have. This is, this is awfully similar. You should do another presentation and link uh, uh, capital allocation to relationship and how it's very similar. So yeah. instead of allocating you know, money, you're allocating time, and this is how you're assessing. In relationship, you have expectation. Yeah, like all that, all that crap, like love, blah, blah, blah. Well, here's, here's another level on that. So there's levels to everything we're talking about, right? Yeah. Another level onto that. So I didn't even talk about opportunity costs on any of this yet. So opportunity costs, when it comes to opportunity costs, you need to think about capital allocation as well. So for example, if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, is my time, is my opportunity cost worth it to spend with them? Is right. it my happy? Yeah. But... That should make me happy. <laughs> that make me happy. But you also have to think about the opportunity cost. If I get into this relationship, am I going to be missing out on a potential other relationship? Right. Am I going to be missing out on time with myself? I could be improving myself. Right. Am I going to be missing out? Is the benefit of the relationship worth these things? Yeah. So you're coming at it from a very factual kind of point of view and a relationship, especially when there's emotion involved, is as you know, it's not rational. And yeah. when people get emotion, it affects their judgment. Like, you know, like when you're doing investing and everyone's like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Chances are, I think most people will be swayed one way or another. It's really hard to not get affected. Like, yes. You know what I mean? Yes, no, and I completely agree. 100% I agree. So this is where another layer of things come on because I'm talking a very logical way. Yeah. Emotions come in. Emotions drive us as humans right yeah. so when it comes to things like this i'm incredibly logical yeah when it comes to my family my wife and kids and parents mm -hmm. brother sister in-law nieces you guys uh my students mm -hmm. friends however yeah. you want to term our relationship yeah. i'm emotional my <laughs> friend in my uh in my area this way uh, it comes back to all that too. So you have to, it is the emotional, the way I would put it is probably is the emotional issue outweigh the benefits or cost of the other issue. All right. 
So it's just, it's just like you put like on you, you know, it's like advantage and disadvantage of saying in a relationship or something. You list the whole thing out and then you see which one is more important and then which one had, had yeah. more. Well, here's another real world example is I've been with my wife now for 16 years, including dating and marriage. Yeah. Am I happy 100% of the days being in a relationship with her? No. <laughs> yeah, the same thing about me. Yeah, right. So you have to weigh the costs and benefits of are there more good days than bad days? Right. Are there more happy days than days where I'm pissed off and angry? Yeah. All that kind of stuff too. And then you have to throw in kids in there. You have to throw in how this is going to affect your kids and all that kind of stuff. So there's massive layers to all of this. Yeah. Uh, all of this. And again, this is why capital allocation is so important to me as the more I've learned and studied about this is because it literally affects your everyday life. Right. Should I be drinking water like I am right now or would I be more happy drinking a soda? For Buffett, it would be a soda. Yeah, for Buffett, <laughs> soda, even though it's unhealthy, for me, yeah. it's water because I don't really like much sodas. Yeah, right. And I'm trying to get healthier and trying to stop being sick like I have been over the last three months. Yeah, right. So, yeah. it literally, should, should I spend time on my phone or on my video game or should I spend time learning? Yeah, yeah most people live on autopilot. I mean, most people ain't going to take the time to figure out their life goal and all that yeah. mission statement um and what they really want to do and then most and then you're gonna to have to take the gut like for example if you're in a bad relationship you know like there's a lot of like people who think that if they um if they break up with their boyfriend girlfriend then it's like what they call sunk cost they've already invested the time energy yep. emotional stuff into the relationship they don't want to break it yep and again it's not logical but Yes. No. And, and emotions play a part of all this. So let's go back to the business owners. They are emotionally involved mm. in these businesses. Emotionally, yeah. not just logically, not just physically. They are emotionally involved in these businesses because they treat them again, like their babies or their kids or whatever. Right. Um, so it's all of this is difficult. I'm not going to say any of this is easy. And you have to consider like what their friend would say, like, you know, like the, 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 wife, their spouse, their, their husband, whatever. Yeah. Should I be doing, and that's another example. Should I be doing what makes me happy over what makes everybody else happy? Yeah. Should I take those, their feelings into consideration? Should I suppress some of what I want and need? And that's essentially what a relationship is. You don't get, nobody gets 100% of what they like. If they do, the other person becomes resentful and they leave. Yeah. So there's, there's some give and take in all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where, again, I know I've mentioned this before. This is a, an art to a degree because not you, my decision at this point in time may be different if it's tomorrow based on my mental state and emotional state, how much sleep I got last night, all that kind of stuff. It will definitely be different from your perspective because you have a different life experiences. You have different biases mm -hmm. than I do. Maybe you got great sleep last night. Maybe I slept like crap. They will be completely mm -hmm. different. So uh, this adds another layer as well. Yeah. <laughs> so what are we like seven, eight, nine layers down at this point is you have to, especially for a company, you can't just think about what's best for yourself. You have to think about what's best for the entire company. And then, and then also another issue that's quite comp well, that's quite very difficult to get attacked is like, you know, maybe the best decision is to fire your employee. 
Yeah. But how many people want to do that? How yeah. many people actually want to fire people? Yeah. Well, I, I had to fire one of my uh, employees, my teammates the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh. After I knew I should have made the decision earlier based on what I was seeing and learning and watching yeah. based on feedback from other teammates, but I let it go longer than I should have because yeah. I wanted to make sure myself, even yeah. though my other teammates were like, Hey, this is going on. You should probably either talk to him or figure it out or fire him or whatever. I let it go longer, frankly, because I'm nice. I'm too nice in many cases when it comes yeah, to that. Yeah. Yeah, that was my first time ever firing somebody. Right, right. But you're going to make a hot call. Yeah. And I, I've been fired before, so I know how it feels. Right. I didn't want to make somebody feel like that, but I didn't feel bad about doing it to him. Yeah. Because of everything that I personally saw, everything I heard from my teammates. Yeah, right. It was the right decision for the company and frankly for him at that point because I was just going to continue getting more and more pissed off. Yeah, right. So... And again, that's to say to, to not, I hate that I'm repeating this, but that's another layer is essentially how I viewed it is he was wasting not only my time mm -hmm. and, and money by paying him, but he was wasting yeah. my teammates time by having to fix stuff he wasn't doing that frankly right, right. I him 10 times in some case to do. So he's not only wasting my time and my money, mm -hmm. my teammates time as well. Right. Or I guess his teammates time as well. And that yeah, and like, opportunity cost as well. Yeah, if you continue to ignore it, then you're telling him it's okay behavior. His yeah. behavior is okay. That's what yeah. I find from a relationship. Yeah. If you tolerate it, if you keep tolerating it, they'll they'll know it's they'll keep pushing button, they'll they'll know what yeah. they can play with. And well, in another real world, and we've talked about this before, is you and I are nice guys. So yeah. we we tend to let things go on longer than they should. And we tend to get taken advantage of more than mean people or people who don't care. <laughs> yeah. Which is we have, if we're going to be nice, we have to be comfortable with that. That's another opportunity cost. That's another capital allocation decision. We have to be comfortable with that to a degree. Yeah. I mean, we can't just be walked over either. Yeah. I, frankly, I don't get walked over. I, this take a long time to learn, but I've always yeah. kind of stuck up for myself and whatever. Um, but you have to be able to learn that as well. If, right. if that's not in your personality trait is to fight back at some point, then you're going to get walked over and you're going to be miserable. So uh, it sort of makes sense because the world is a competitive place and people are competing right. for resources. And there are people out there who would intentionally do you harm. So that's yeah. why you really need to put your own interest. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Well, and the, older I got, the more I've realized that's true, especially with kids. I mean, when you're a parent, you have to work for your kid's best interest. But if you're miserable and you're tired and you're sick all the time, how great of a parent can you really be? You need to take care of yourself, whether that's waking up earlier, whether that's eating better, whether that's staying up later to do whatever you need to do. For me, it's waking up earlier in the morning so I can do my, ex my stretches, my exercise that I've been doing, eat my breakfast do some reading, learning, writing, whatever I choose to be doing that morning. Then I get the kids ready for school. Now that they're starting school again, I take them to school every day. I pick them up from school every day. I do my stuff while they're at school, do it after I help them with homework, after I help coach their soccer team. So it's, 
it's a matter of allocating my time well mm-hmm. to still be a good dad, yeah. but also make myself happy and do things like this that I want to be doing right. as well. So it's a matter of essentially capital allocation is a matter of creating priorities. Mm. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Is what do I prioritize? What is important to me and how am I going to accomplish that? Mm-hmm. What is most important to me? Actually, is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Is it most important to me that I'm investing my capital well at my company? Right. Is it most important that I'm growing my company, even if it's not necessarily efficient? Yeah. Is it most important that I just have a company and I can say I'm a business owner? Is it most important that I take care of my employees and my customers and clients? All of these things kind of go into this discussion. Um, and again, most business owners just get into business because they want to work for themselves. They don't think about any of this. This is yeah. why when, um, um, to get back to one of your earlier points is I, people ask me all the time, if, if I could get rid of my dizziness issues, would I, would, if I could like, let's say it's a Thanos snap and I had the infinity gauntlet on my hand, could I go, if I could, would I go back and get rid of my dizziness like that? No because my life would be completely different if I didn't have the business. I wouldn't have had those years to think about and reflect on who I am, what I want to do, what I want to be mm-hmm. when I could literally do nothing else other than sit there and think because I felt so terrible. Mm-hmm. So it's very valuable that lesson, I guess is the best way to put it mm-hmm. was or it taught me the lesson of, hey, you need to think about what you want to do, what you want to be. And a lot of people don't get this until they're like 60, 70, 80 years old. And yes. I'm glad that I was able to get this at an earlier age in my mid twenties, kind of when I started thinking about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Is it gave me a lot of perspective on what was important to me, what wasn't important to me and what, again, I didn't know about capital allocation up at this point, but now that I do, how am I allocating my time to get to where I want to go? Essentially, I cut out almost 100% of TV. I don't watch like any TV anymore. It's, unless it's NFL football when that's in season or occasionally soccer game, like when the World Cup's going on, stuff like that. I pretty much don't watch any TV anymore because mm-hmm. I'd rather allocate my time to my kids, coaching their soccer team. Uh, spending time with my family, learning, reading, working, these kind of things. I'd rather do that. That is more getting back to a, something I said earlier. That's more of a priority for me than TV right. at this stage of my life. And these, these things change constantly. What makes it even more complex is your needs change. If you don't have a kid and then all of a sudden you have a kid nine months later, your priorities are going to change. <laughs> yeah. Like for, for single people, it'll probably be top of my head. It'll be probably something like travel and a bit of luxury yeah. like cars and, you know, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. That's and, essentially, you know. you're allocating your time and capital and mental capacity. You're trading your time, in this case, the capital, for experiences versus gaining knowledge or skills. Right, right. Which I think, I, I think you have think to right. figure out which is best. And I'm not saying there's a right way in each decision mm-hmm. or each and every decision. There's not a general right thing, but you have to decide is my trip to Madrid with my wife that we took after being together for 16 years, we've never taken a vacation together. Is that worth taking those week, 10 days off mm-hmm. 
in my perspective, it was because I want to spend time with my wife and we've never taken a vacation together. We've been together for 16 years. So other cases that might not be, if we travel all the time, I may say, Hey, I just need to work. I haven't worked in a while. That kind of thing too. We've been traveling a lot. Like we have this summer. I told my wife after we got back from San Diego, I was like, I just need to work. I literally, I'm to the point now where I'm, I'm just driving me insane. I'm not able to work. So I told her, we, we just need to chill out. We need to get the kids in school. We need to focus on that kind of stuff. And I needed to get back to doing some more work because it was literally driving me insane. I've taken not necessarily time off because as a parent, you don't take time off when you have kids on a vacation, but um, time off from doing stuff like this that I like doing. I was like, we just, for a little while, we need to chill and we can plan another trip next summer or whatever. But for now, we just need to chill and focus on what we need to be doing and specifically what I need to be doing to get to where I want us to go, which is to the point eventually where we can travel pretty much whenever we want. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, um, does that all make sense? Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Does this help you understand capital allocation a lot better? Yeah. I would say just, um, just the, the whole process of like linking it to real life concept, I think really helped, especially for older people to link it to yeah. like relationship. Anyone can relate to that. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And guess what? We talked briefly about these kind of things, but essentially we only got to here and we talked for an hour and a half. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Step one, stage one, we talked about essentially all day today. Oh, interesting. Like, and, then, and then if you want to break it down further, it's like, what's, what's the business? <laughs> what's the business? Exactly. I mean, there's literally, I could spend days talking about this because I, frankly, I find it fascinating and because I've studied it for years. Mm. So, and I'm just kind of trying now to put my thoughts into this in a real world sense yeah. um, after studying this for so long. So. All right. I want to ask you quickly about something because I've been reading the finance news in Australia. The whole yeah. headline, everyone talking about how, uh, you know, how the interest rate around the world is really low. Some country, you know, the government bonds are negative. So what Australia is doing, they're slashing the rate close to zero. It's gonna, it's probably going to go very close. It's 1% now. Uh, yeah, it's 1%, I think so. Yeah, it's going to probably go to zero. And then the, the Reserve Bank in Australia, they're, they're thinking of doing what you guys have done, which is quantitative easing and, you know, forcing the kid. Forcing they're already the talking about that in Australia. They're already started talking about that now. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Look, sorry to cut you off, but are you guys in a recession yet or no? Uh, no, but the economy is not doing well. That's insane. The economy is not doing well and, and people are over leveraged. I mean, and like how this also like a household debt to GDP or something like that. It's like to almost 200% or something like specific. It's insane. And so they, they, they're forced to cut interest rate because people are not, the inflation is very low. People are not yeah. spending money in the economy. So they're trying to force, essentially. They're trying to force people to spend money. Pretty much, yeah. And then the savers get fucked over because you know, the interest rate that you put in the bank are literally going to zero. And then the consequence of that is pretty much all asset price, literally all asset price, doesn't matter if it has a dividend or not, are going up. Shares, yeah, shares, property, what else is nope. it? On bond going down to like, I mean, the Australian government can borrow 
money at like 1% for 30 years or something. I mean, some countries like Germany, I think Switzerland, they can borrow money. Oh, this is quite interesting. In, in, in um, what's, that, what's that Danish? In Denmark, in Denmark, you can borrow money like a mortgage. You can take it out a mortgage, 15 years, fixed interest rate at 0%. That is, that is interesting. How does that work? At zero percent, you can take out a mortgage for zero percent. For like fixed, it's not variable. It's fixed for fifteen years. To be honest with you, and I think we mentioned this briefly in one of our discussions before, with Mateo, is the world what the world is going through now in terms of zero or negative interest rate policy, has never happened in world history. So nobody really knows how it's going to end. All right. In my opinion, it's going to end horribly. Because what <laughs> happens, what, what, what happens, let's say Australia. Let's say next year, Australia goes into a major recession. Right. Let's say 20, 30% drop in asset prices. Mm-hmm. What is Australia to do then to improve or stabilize things if they've already dropped interest rates to zero or negative and they've yeah. already started quantitative easing, what are they supposed to do then? Don't know. Don't know. Nobody knows. This has never happened in world history. But what, what they're trying to do, governments around the world, what they're trying to do is stave off Japanese-style 30-year deflation. Yeah. What the, that's what they're trying to do. Why are they trying to do that? Do you know? Um, actually, I don't know why they're trying to do that. So in my opinion, and again, I'm not a macroeconomist by any degree, but I'm a libertarian. So deflation to me isn't a bad thing in and of itself because prices should go up and they should go down based on the market, right? But governments around the world want prices to keep generally rising so they can say to people, hey, the price of your house or your investment or whatever has gone up XYZ percent over the years just based on inflation. If things deflate like they've been doing in Japan for 20, 30 years, then the prices of everything continue to go down. So the government can't say, hey, we're doing a great job making your prices or the values of your stuff go up if they're going down, right? But if you continue to have them going up forever, at some point, which is what Japan found out in the 80s or began to find out in the 80s, if you continue to inflate things, it's going to pop at some point and prices are going to go back down to quote unquote their market level. But governments don't want that. Mm. In my opinion, governments don't want that because then they can't say, hey, the value of your home is going up XYZ percent every single year. They, because why don't they want to do that? Because then they don't have as much control over you, in my opinion. If play, prices deflate for the next 20, 30 years, let's say worldwide, mm-hmm. there will literally be revolutions. Oh, really? In my opinion, yes. Mm. Oh, you mean social unrest? Would that be a- yeah, social unrest? Because let's say uh, baby boomers, baby boomers uh. around the world are retiring in mass over the next 30 years. So if their asset values and investment values go down for the next 20, 30 years, what's going to happen? They're going to be either destitute Mm -hmm. or near destitute on government payrolls. Yeah. 
the taxes are going to rise and then people are going to be pissed off about that. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to cause, in my opinion, if things don't fix themselves, which I don't, again, I don't know how to fix them because no, nothing in the world has ever seen something like this or world history. There's nothing, nothing been like this before zero or negative interest rate policy. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen. Well, nobody they, knows, they how, nobody saying, knows how to fix the underlying kind of issues. Well, they keep saying that the interest rate will stay low for a long time. And by long time, as in 10 years. That's what the prediction. Then asset price, the reason they're doing that is because they, they want asset price to keep going up. Oh. Because they want people to keep investing, which if you're investing in overvalued assets, what's going to happen? That's essentially what it is. If you continue to inflate things forever, what's going to happen? It's going to pop at one point. Your return, not only is it going to pop at one point, but your returns are going to get lower and lower. Right. The more overvalued asset you invest in, not only the lower your return is over time, but the more risk you have, right? Margin of safety is number one rule for value investors. Margin of safety. If you invest, continue to invest in overvalued assets that give you almost yeah. zero return, your risk is amplified. Yeah, but the problem is the risk-free rate, like the money that you put in the bank is very low. So yes. the, there's a really low hurdle rate. So, you know, so getting like half of 1%, I'm getting like, the, it literally you put your money in the bank in Australia, you get 1%, one to two percent, then you you pay like taxes on it. So your real your real return is literally half a percent, and then the stocks are paying you know, normal stock. You know, like blue chip, quote unquote blue chip stock, give you about forty five percent, probably plus a franking credit, eight percent dividend yield. That looks better than putting your money in the bank. <laughs> but that's also why asset prices are continue to go up on stocks is because people can't save money. Because yeah, they're, 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 they're returning. returning essentially oh. negative returns after you include taxes and inflation, you're earning zero rates of return. Yeah. That's why Real rates and stocks and they're going straight up in value. Yeah. So what, what option is it? And that, that's a problem. <laughs> well, what are you meant to do? Like put your money in the, yeah. the range. Again, going budget. back to the baby boomers, people over the age of about 55, what are you supposed to invest in? Hmm. I tell them when people ask me that are in that age group, don't have your money in the market. If you do put it in an index fund, yeah. that's what I tell them. Yeah. I tell them to invest in themselves, invest in experiences like travel, invest in paying off debt, um, right. invest in um, real estate. If you can find cheap real estate, uh, invest in personal businesses. If they want to start a business or they know a business they can invest in. That's what I tell people. I tell people uh, right now to stay away from the market. You know, if, if you're a financial planner, that's not what you would say. Most financial planners are not incentivized to. Tell no, them. and that's why that's why financial pl- planners, most of them, I don't I don't agree with most of them, because uh, they want to make money off of them. Obviously, <laughs> financial planners in the United States, again, I don't know if this is worldwide, but CFPs in the United States do not have a fiduciary right to do what's in the best interest of their cus- customers and clients. They do not. Uh, same here. Okay. So RIAs, registered investment advisors, which is what I would be if I chose to be, yeah. they have a fiduciary right to do what's in the best interest of their clients. So I would not be a certified financial planner because uh, it would it would literally drive me insane because I would do it, be doing what's best for me, but not best for my clients. And that's just not uh, how I'm wired. I'm not wired to do that. Uh, um, but yeah, no, that's essentially, and I've, I've turned down at this point 
about a million and a half to, to $2 million from people who have approached me about investing their capital, uh, because, but they want to invest it in the stock market. And, and I tell turn it down. And I tell, yeah, I, I turn it down. I say up front, I haven't bought a stock in about four or four and a half years now because I can't find anything that's undervalued that fits well, my criteria that's undervalued. Then wouldn't you so, just take the money and put it in an index fund or something? Is that what you're selling? No, then that's what I tell them. Either I can take your money and look to invest in a real estate, whatever. If they uh -huh. want to specifically invest in the stock market, uh -huh. I tell them either to invest in an index fund themselves. Uh -huh. Yeah, because that's not hard. <laughs> and uh, no, and that's, that's essentially what I tell them to do is I tell them to invest in index funds themselves. I don't even offer to take their money and invest it for them uh -huh. because essentially – Essentially, I'd just be a middleman earning one or two percent, whatever, when they can do it themselves for free. Yeah, right. That's what I tell them. You're not adding value. Yeah, because it's the truth. That's how I truly feel is because I, ha I haven't bought anything in four, and a half, four or four and a half years in the stock market. If you want right. me to invest your money into an index fund, I can show you a low-cost index fund, Vanguard yeah. fund, that will yeah. do the same exact thing at a very low, what is it, one-tenth of a percent now of their expense ratio. Yeah. And it'll do the same thing. It'll track the stock market up and down. I mean, you won't yeah. make any money in excess of the stock market, but you also won't lose money in excess of the stock market. It'll just track whatever the stock market does, if that's what right. you want to do. And then I tell them again, if that's what you want to do, I can show you how to do it, but I don't recommend doing that now because valuation. <laughs> if you're a baby boomer, now, if you're younger, I would recommend putting in an index fund for 20, right. 30, 40 years and just kind of forgetting about it. But if yeah. you're a 55, 65-year-old getting ready yeah. to retire, I, I pretty much tell them, if you have money in the stock market, you need to make sure you're comfortable losing it. Uh, so losing at least 50% or losing the entire amount? You need to make sure you are comfortable losing as much. At, the, way I, the way I word it to them is you need to be comfortable losing a substantial amount of your money right. if you have money in the stock market right now because valuations are so high and you're getting close to retirement. Again, that changes for people our age and younger, but if you're close to retirement or in retirement, you need to be very careful. They say for most people, like don't, don't put your money in the stock market. And if you're not willing to bear at least like an 80% drop or something, I don't know. Yeah, I think said, if you're not willing to watch your stocks drop by 50% and essentially you, you shouldn't be investing in the stock market, which is true. Yeah, that's, that's, which is, I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Because then you make emotional decisions. Because then you that's when you sell when you should be buying. Yeah. And then again, so, emotion get involved. And yeah. And that's why most people sell sell at the bottom or uh, sell at the top. Yeah. No, what is what is the saying? They sell, they sell at the bottom. Well, the market, market bottom yeah, down. They sell at the bottom and then they buy at the top. Yeah. Usually. So, yeah, because they're running on emotions and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, and uh, I would say I see people say all the time, "I've got money to play with in the stock market." That's fine. <laughs> well, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. The money to lose, right? You're fine, losing that money, and it's essentially like extra money, and you don't know what to do with it. And it's two percent of your portfolio. You do whatever you want with your money. I don't care. But if yeah. you're have fifty percent of your portfolio and you're playing in the stock market, you're yeah. gonna get hammered at some point. Right. You may make money in the short term, but you're gonna get hammered at some point. Mm. That's, that's interesting how you've actually not taken people's money and you actually consider the best interest because I say most financial um, 
planners out there, especially people like, especially if you run like hedge fund or something, yeah, you'll be incentivized to take people money, whether or not you can generate a return. Oh yeah. Them. Oh yeah. No, and that's and I tell these people up front is I will recommend what's in your best interest, even if it's not to my best interest, because again, I could have taken this one and a half, two million dollars and just kind of sat there and earned fees off of it myself. Yeah. But I would feel wrong doing that. Yeah. yeah. Frankly, I, I would feel wrong doing that because essentially I'm taking their money and doing nothing. Yeah, that's how I feel as well. That's, that's why I don't think I'll be very good. I don't think I'll be a very, very good businessman. Like, you know, like, you know, build, build a hedge fund or whatever, but I'd be very good at like, like psychology or social work, that kind of stuff. Because yeah. it's just my nature to help people. So. Yeah. Well, and I'm the same way, but the way I look at it is instead of taking money or value from people is I look to add as much value as I possibly can to people. Right. Like for example, if I were to take that one and a half, $2 million, let's say $2 million, yeah. I would look to turn that into $20 million over time. So everything right. I, I look to do personally is I yeah. look to get 10 X in value. So if somebody's paying me $10,000, I look to generate a hundred thousand dollars in value for them. However they perceive that value um, for them. Right. That's how Ten I times. look at it. 10 times the value. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And again, it's trading value going back to capital allocation It's trading my knowledge and skills for potentially their capital, but I'm also giving them an enormous amount of value as well. Uh, uh. You keep telling me the market's going to correct and, and I swear to God, it's not correcting. <laughs> Man, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really anxious. People are like, you know, beating up blue chip stuff like no tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's going to at some point. I don't know when, but Unless something specifically fits my criteria, I don't buy. So, yeah, you'll be. I think you'll be waiting a long time, honestly. From yeah. No, from, and I'm fine with that too. I could be waiting another five, ten years. I'm fine with that. I'll keep working on my businesses and doing these kind of things and growing client bases and student bases, and I'll be perfectly mm -hmm. fine with that. If I miss out on, and again, I'm still invested in the market. I still the companies I've owned from before that four and a half four or four and a half years, I still own them. Yeah. But I'm not buying anything new either. But why aren't you selling? I have sold a couple. Um, Most of the companies I've gotten rid of have been merged or bought out or gone private uh -huh. or whatever. I think I've sold two companies, one in the last five, four, four and a half, five years. One was I made a mistake on, uh -huh. and it was down significantly. The other was up significantly, I think a two or three times, two or three X. Mm -hmm. And it was an end cap situation. Oh, okay. So I sold it. So the margin of safety was gone. The reason I haven't sold the other businesses is because I deem them as good to great businesses, ones that right. I could hold for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'm still up on all those, I think. Except I think one might be slightly down, um, but the other ones I'm up reasonably significantly on. Do you consider the um, tax implication no. when you sell at all? No, so you, generally, I hold for more than a year. So it's, I think in the U.S. now, it's 10, 15% versus like if you were a short term, it's like 25 or 30%, I think. Capital gain? Uh, it's lower, yeah. The capital gain in America is lower than Australia. We get a 50% discount, but then, but then our capital gain gets added on to our marginal tax rate. So which is, which can be up to 50%. So you could pay up to 25%. For long -term and long-term yeah. or is there a difference? Uh, long-term, like if you, if you, yeah. 
I think all of the capital gain gets taxed. Yeah, I think long term, I think it's Trump dropped it to like 10 or 15% on long term, I think. And that's all anything over a year is how it's deemed. Uh, so it's not that significant. Yeah. Uh, no, so I mean, it, is it a consideration? Like, for example, when I get to owning 10, 20, $100 million, is it a consideration? Yes. Right, okay. Well, it's a small amount. But when it comes to overriding, if I if I come to the decision that I need to sell this because it's I either made a mistake or uh, the company's up significantly and it's an end cap type situation and there's no margin of safety left or the company starts doing stupid stuff, if I deemed it to be a good to great business <laughs> and they start doing stupid stuff, yeah. I'm just going to sell no matter what. I mean, well, it's uh, a consideration, yes, but it doesn't override... I still need to sell based on X, Y, Z, re- other reasons. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, another opportunity cost is after you sell and then you pay the taxes and then you have the cash, but then you, you, you have to redeploy or you have to put it somewhere, right? Essentially. Yeah. And then again, with no negative interest rate, there's not less of an incentive to leave it in the bank. I mean, where else can you put it? I mean, <laughs> yeah. So what am I doing with uh, the portfolio as I manage right now, for example, is I haven't bought anything in four, four and a half years. They've continued to add money to these portfolios uh, and I've sold a couple, but I think three others have been bought out, merged, gone private, whatever. So the portfolios are managed right now are about 45% cash. Right. Okay. Where does that cash go? Where do you put the cash? It just sits in the account, in the brokerage account. Uh, um, and then if you have over a certain amount, it goes, they automatically put it into like a money market account. So it's earning yeah, it's like 1% or something. One tenth of 1% or whatever. Oh, um, so it's essentially you're losing value over time after you consider inflation and taxes. Yeah. But still, I'd rather have that there than have it into something I don't necessarily want to own. And then it crashes and I lose 50% of the money um, too. So. Yeah, Australia, we, most people take the money out and put it in the um, mortgage account so because then they don't have the interest rate on their mortgage. So it's effectively like about a 3%, 4% risk rate if you have a mortgage. Yeah. That's another option, yeah. Yeah, it's about the rate here is now four to four and a half for 30-year loans on homes. Yeah. yeah, so if you pay that, if you put it in an offset account, you can avoid interest on that and then take it out when, the, when you need. Yeah. Kind Not of like bad. an option, I guess. Yeah. Not too bad, 4%. Yeah. Well, in today's market, four percent would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in the U.S., average savings account yields something like 0.25 percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something so that's what opportunity cost. <laughs> yeah, something insane. So, man, I'm praying for a recession or a crash, but it doesn't feel like it's coming anytime soon. And uh, I'm Prediction is probably five years, we're going to, five to 10 years, we're probably going to continue having low interest rate. Yeah, I would say what I told you the other day via Messenger is the likelihood of a recession is far greater than it was, say, five years ago. But that does that mean it's going to happen within the next year or the next five years? I don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. And that's why I don't talk about like overall stock market valuations much anymore is because valuations are still insane worldwide. Yeah. They've been that way for five, six, seven years now. So yeah. I don't know yeah. when the market's going to crash. I just know it's going to crash sooner rather than later. Yeah. And again, yeah. that's relative. It could be next month or it could be five years from now. I don't, I don't know. So. 
Yeah, I think I think Buffett doesn't even think about this stuff. He says it's a waste of time for him. <laughs> yeah, I don't really think about it. I used to think about it quite a bit, um, but I don't really think about it anymore either. I just do what I'm doing and continue reading and continue learning and continue improving and yeah. I'll be ready when it happens. And that's my goal for you guys and other clients and students is to get you ready for when it does happen so you can take advantage of the opportunities. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I think we're going over time, but <laughs> I've been oh, doing some uh, TV uh, total enterprise value on some of the stock and then going into the um, financial reports and stuff. And sometimes the cash is not cash the same way you think cash is like you know cash and cash equivalent and then you look at the fucking fine print on the annual report is like oh it's like a working capital then they, they, they must use this cash to run the business then why the fuck is it on the cash and cash equivalent why can't they put it in a working capital what because the fuck? i think according to accounting rules if it's cash on hand or cash in the bank it's yeah. considered cash yeah but it's not it's not it's not like cash in the sense that they can use it yeah that's why you have to read footnotes too <laughs> Well, that's part of, the, part of the thing about being an analyst and going through the numbers and stuff. But it just drives you insane. I mean, oh, man. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, it's even if it's working capital, I think they technically have to list it as do accounting rules and laws and regulations. They have to list it as cash on the hand and cash on the bank. Yeah, but uh, okay, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. It's just, yeah. Does it make sense from our perspective? No. Because if it's not, if they have to use it to kind of run operations, they can't use it to invest in marketing or huh. investment huh. Is, or whatever. It's essentially like money they need to run the business. Yeah. It's essentially what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well. Pretty much. Yep. No good point. So uh, any questions, comments, anything about today? No, but I, I learned a lot today. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the session. I yeah, you really found it valuable? It. Because we haven't, I mean, we've talked about capital allocation a little bit, but not specifically an entire session on it. Did you find it valuable? Oh, where's Mateo? Um, Mateo? He's in Switzerland, I think, doing some. Oh, right. I don't know if he's on uh, doing something with dentistry or what. All right. Okay. Cool. cool. So, do you find found it valuable today in terms of your overall understanding of value investing and finance and whatever? Well, relationships and everything too, I guess. <laughs> Relationship, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy talking to you, Jason. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's, uh I, look, I really look forward to Sundays having this session because uh, it's always like a learning curve. Like you just learn a lot. Awesome, glad to hear that. Yeah, no, I, I love these sessions too. So, um, that's another thing I'm working on is getting more students into these kind of sessions because the more people we do have interacting, yeah. Mateo yeah. might have different questions than you do. Shafiq yeah. might have different questions than you do, and then we'll have a entire another discussion maybe instead of getting to one point stage 1.1 1. 1, or yeah. stage one of stage one we would have yeah. talked about just stage one kind of overall today you never know where the conversation would go so hey, i was thinking um if you get enough people to, in in your course and like you, you might not even have you know you might not even have to run the session you could just have like five or six people doing like a zoom session and then they can just talk about the journey and then you share yeah and all that stuff. You don't actually need to facilitate every time. If yeah, you get no, enough that's actually what, what I'm going to work towards in the master class, or not the master class, the masterminds. Uh, it, for example, the first one looks like it's going to be on analyzing financial statements. Yeah. Eventually, I want to get to the point where I can just ask questions and then they can discuss and you guys can discuss and that kind of thing. That's how yeah. I want it to be eventually. So, because yeah. I think, frankly, that's more valuable. 
because I don't know everything. I frankly admit uh-huh. to you all the time. I don't know everything. I'm still learning every day. So, um, so uh, I think that would be more valuable as well as getting a bigger discussion going. And I think that would probably take at minimum five, six people. So, yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll we get to regulate. It's yeah. Just become a habit, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it was that point, but we've kind of fallen off. And a lot of that was my fault as well um, with vacations and sicknesses and family stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to get back on that track where do this at least once a week. And then with the masterminds, do those once or twice a week, depending on how many people sign up and that kind of thing. And we'll kind of build from there. So mm-hmm. have you fixed your website? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's mostly finished. My team is still working to finish some of the final things. It's driving me insane. But yes, oh, I'm going to start posting again, I think, tomorrow. Because um, I've got posts built up. It's just the site hasn't been ready. I can't, uh, your website is very slow for me. Yes, that's one right. of the main things she's right. working on is she's going to optimize it. Yeah, it's quite slow. But it's, 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 I like the new, form, yeah. new format. Awesome. A lot better. Yeah, it should be a lot simpler to read. So yeah, no, still working on that. Hopefully should start posting things to the blog back again tomorrow. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, great website. I like, I like, I like my it. teammates know, uh, know that you like it, so. Much better yeah. than the last one. Yeah. Yes, taking a long time to get there though. It's driving me nuts, but I'm not a web programmer, so I understand that there's issues, so. That's, that's okay, as long as we get there. That's... Yeah, exactly. All right, David. Anything else? No, all good. No, thanks, thanks, thanks for the thanks for the session. Of course, um, I'll get this post. Oh, the week is is uh, is it still on next week or the week after? Or waiting for Mateo to come back. Yeah, I'm gonna try what? to keep doing these every week. Um, um, I sh- I don't have any vacations or anything, so unless something comes up from Dubai or some business opportunity comes up, I should be able to do these every Sunday for the foreseeable future. So. Uh, okay. So, um, yeah. So plan on next week and I'll reach out to Mateo about midweek, see if he's going to join Shafiq. Same thing. Or maybe, yeah, maybe we can reschedule it for him. And I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever is going to get the most people in these sessions, I'll work around times. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for more people to join. Yeah. Working on that with my team as well in the masterminds and we've got plans for all that. Now that the site's finally back up, the site not being up was kind of holding all that back. So, yeah. So now that that's mostly back up, I'm going to start getting back at that again. So cool. Cool. Awesome. All right. All right. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. I'll see you next week. Yeah. Yep.